These stories are moving, aren't they? Not only the stories that happen with the the Czech students and uh, the movement that there, but the movement here. And I am deeply, deeply grateful for a leader that drives that. That is not just about let's have fun because we're with with the youth, but is very purposeful in in that movement. In fact, as he as Clay mentioned, we we are uh, driven ourselves for movement. And my guess is that most of you who have come today have taken the time and the energy, the investment of your morning to come together because you're serious about your faith. Now, I'm sure that there are some that have come today that are, you know, maybe you're here because someone else is, that you came because someone else brought you, and that's that's fine. That's kind of how I start it. And uh, we always know that God and His time and your time will, will come together and, and, and fuse together in a way that perhaps your appetite will grow for God. But many of us have come because we have settled in our minds and in our personal lives that we don't want to be about a faith by name only. We don't want it to, to be about our relationship with God and allow it just to be something that is a conceptual experience. But we want it to be one that, that drives our life, that navigates our life, that pulls us, that at times makes us uncomfortable that we're willing to, at times, that we, we would be challenged, even disturbed, unsettled. Because that's how God always moves. It's not a comfort. And if I said, hey, show of hands, who just wants to have a comfortable faith? I'm guessing that no one's hand would go up for those who really mean it. And for those who would even be bar- embarrassed to confess. Yeah, I'd like it all comfortable. But for most of us, we wouldn't want that. And for that reason, we, we do speak quite a bit about movement. And movement is very challenging for human beings. In fact, Jesus did a lot of amazing things as are, are, are recorded here in the scriptures. He healed the blind. He healed the lame. He cast out strongholds of demons. He overcame the elements of creation by walking on water and calming storms. And all of those things for us as normal human beings are out of the realm of of us even being able to wrap our minds around them, wrap our arms around them, so to speak. But of all those things that Christ did, I would propose to us that the most difficult thing and more difficult than all those miracles that I just mentioned, the more difficult thing that he was up against was changing the minds of men and women, of human beings. When he stood on the Sermon on the Mount and delivered the Sermon on the Mount, he He said, now I know that you've heard, and he would fill in the blank, things that they had heard by the rules and regulations. But I tell you, that was a tougher moment than for Christ and casting out demons. Because he understood that as human beings, and especially the older we get, the more solidified and more perhaps fossilized our ways are, especially if we've done them for a certain period of time. Why do I say that? Because this morning, we're going to focus in on a component of our faith that at the surface would seem like, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. But when you begin to dig down deeper, you'll understand that we're going to try to to change a paradigm, a way of thinking about something, 
never against the foundations of our faith, but how we practice, how we engage ourselves. Because if we can embrace our identity, this has been the topic of our conversations over the past few weeks. If we can truly embrace and engage the identity of who God has made us, then actions will follow. It has with so many individuals in the scriptures and throughout history. Gideon didn't see himself as a mighty warrior. He didn't feel that way. But he embraced that identity and actions followed because he didn't wait until he felt like a mighty warrior. Certainly, like we saw last week, Moses didn't feel like a leader of three million people. But God said, you are able, you are qualified. I will work through you. And if you embrace who I'm calling you to be, then your actions, as they did with Moses, will follow. Jesus looked at some ordinary fishermen, and he said, Now I'm going to change who you, th- who you think you are. I'm going to change that. That was one of the greatest miracles. Don't think of yourself as just an ordinary labor-intensive uh, in- person, a fisherman. But now I'm going to ask you to be the seeker of human souls, the fisher, the fisher of souls, so to speak. And they had to embrace that, and they did. Had they not embraced that identity, they would have just remained in, in the square on their chessboard. They would have never moved out to another chessboard. So for that reason, we have looked at those, those identifications that God has given to us. And today, when each of these students were speaking, Mike, well, there it is again. Emily began and said, you know, this 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 um, friend that she met in, in the Czech Republic, she said, I don't want to be dependent on anyone. I want to be independent. And then th- then um, th- when we learn about those two twins from Brennan that they said, we just don't have anybody that we can depend on. We don't have anybody. Their story was different, but it had the same theme. And that theme was reliant. I don't want to be reliant on anyone, this first girl said in, in, in the Czech Republic. I don't want to be dependent on it. And then these two boys said, we don't really have anybody to depend on. We don't know where, where to turn. We don't know where to go. And then this, this final uh, gal that Courtney told us about said, I, I'm kind of depending on God a little bit. And so when we focused, our focus today is on the word, the identification of being reliant. That as human beings, especially living in America, we're not only taught, but we're conditioned to be non-reliant, to be self-sufficient, to be independent, to stand on our own two feet. And there is a point in, in our life that we should be able to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, but that doesn't make us exempt from being reliant on one another. Now, when I say those words, this is where our our ram kicks in the the, the thing that's the, that we know that's in our our memory bank so to speak like okay i know exactly what you mean by being reliant i'm going to depend on someone i'm going to call somebody up if i need them that is all well and good we speak often as you know if you've been around 360 about the 2 a.m friend the challenge for us of course especially for men is that that telephone at 2 a.m is about a thousand pounds in weight. That so often to actually pick up the phone and call someone in our time of need, regardless of what level it is, typically for us as human beings, we have to be so low 
in order to say, wow, I got to call out to someone. So today, the attempt is to allow the word of God to change what reliant means. That we're reliant on each other for sure. But we, we have to understand that at the deepest base of us, we're tethered. I don't know if any of you uh, attempted to run away when you were growing up as a kid. Now, I think sometimes parents are trying to run away. You know, uh, yesterday we bought a fish. It's our first pet. And uh, my dear wife was uh, going through uh, many layers of challenge to actually get the fish. And we've been talking about the fish and we're, we're excited and it's pretty cool and everything. But they went to the pet store and that, you know, remember it was raining yesterday, pouring on rain and lightning and thunder and all that. Nobody wants to be out. And she's out there with the troops and getting, you know, getting, I'm getting the text, you know, here, well, we're out. And I was texting her, where's the fish? How's the fish? You know, haven't even met the fish. And so they get home and they're excited. The fish is here. The fish has arrived. Now, who was carrying the bag that had the fish tank? And the gravel and all that. Well, you were. No, you were. You know, we get into that. Well, it's now the the actual tank has been left at the pet store. (laughs) And so, you know, I could tell she was close to the edge. I'm lying. She was over the edge. Let's just say. (laughs) So I said to her, it was raining. I said, well, I'll do the, the husbandly thing. I said, well, let me go back to the pet store. She goes, no, I'm going back. I'm going back to the pet store, and no one's coming with me. And basically, she's like, I'm running away from home for 30 minutes. <laughs> but when we were kids, we also gave it an attempt. Yeah, I'm just remembering now my dad used to be at the grocery store for a long time. Was he not? <laughs> Where's dad? It's been five hours. He was just picking up some cereal. But as kids, we, we would attempt. I heard this story about this guy with this adult was sitting on a, a park bench and this little, little boy came and he has a couple of bags packed and he went past and then he went past again. He went past again. About after the fifth time, he said, may I stop you? What are you doing? And the little kid said, well, I'm running away from home, but my mom says I can't cross the street. <laughs> so no matter how hard we try, I remember I was at my grandmother's one time and I, I ran away from home all the way to the corner. And no matter how independent we try to get in those moments, there's still something that tells us you can't do this by yourself. Something deep down, even in those moments where we're like, I just want to get away. I can't take it anymore. I'm at the edge, but we're tethered. And it's all because God intimately and intrinsically and brilliantly designed us to be that way. Most of you know in Genesis chapter 2, After God had created the universe. Think about it. And everything was good. Everything was good. The stars, the sun, the moon, the irrigation system, the the sustaining mechanisms that were put into place. The rivers, the oceans, the kangaroos and the pelicans. All good. Except that one thing. See, Adam was alone. And God said in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good. It's the first time he ever said it. It is not good for the man to be alone. And of course, he created in that moment a wife. But that statement was a lot broader than his wife. He said, I'll make a, a, a helper suitable for him. 
But in that moment, God said, no matter what your personality is, no matter how independent you feel, no matter if you think you can do it on your own, I have designed you to be reliant. I have designed you to need other human beings and to need God, of course, but to need other human beings. There's an intricate design that God has made us. Now, we come into the spiritual arena with that thought. And all along through the Old Testament, it's all about relationship. There is no solo commando. It's all about tribes and clans and, and nations. And, and it's just playing out this sense of reliance on one another. Then we come to the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul then begins to paint a vivid picture that you cannot get away from. That's what I love about Paul and the writers of the New Testament. They put it in language that we understand. And instead of calling the church the organization of Christ, the company of Christ, the gathering of Christ, the people of Christ, the church is referred to as the body of Christ. Now, there are two layers to the body of Christ. One is the larger body of Christ. For those this morning who are in the Czech Republic, never met them before. But if we have come into Christ, there are so many layers that happen when we come to Christ. One of those is that we are immersed or baptized into the larger body of Christ. Even though we've not met them, if, they're, if, they're, if they've had the, the second birth experience... They are our brothers and sisters in the larger body of Christ. But quite frankly, we often can hide behind that broad brush stroke of, oh, I, I can be by myself and kind of independently live and read my Bible and do all those things because I'm part of the larger corporate body of Christ. But every New Testament letter that's written is to a local body. Of believers. That's where when we're talking, when we're told to love one another, to bear with one another, to be patient with one another, to serve one another, it's all in reference to this, this smaller body of, of, of Christ. In other words, you can't, I cannot bear the weight of those who are in the Dominican Republic today or in the Czech Republic today or in Poland today or whatever country. I don't know them well enough. So when, when we see the reference to the body of Christ in those, with those components and those charges, it's to this local body. Are you with me? That's where, as we would say, the rubber hits the road so that there's traction to what we believe. So we're going we're gonna to look right now at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'm going to move quickly today, but we're going to hover here for just a little bit because Paul then says, let me take this and give you some obvious things that if you are a part of a body, then you'll understand some things as we clarify. Watch 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Well, I just like to kind of come and get some inspiration once in a while and I, I and I and I want to worship God perfectly okay but that does not allow you to be exempt from being an integral part of a body which means that my knee is attached 
It cannot be disattached, unattached. In fact, Paul goes on to say in verse 14 of the same chapter, Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should identify itself, if it embraces the identity, if the foot should say, well, because I'm a hand, I don't belong to the body. Paul says it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. In other words, it doesn't matter what the foot says. It is what it is what it is. In other words, I'm a Christian. That doesn't mean if I think, well, I'm independent. No, it doesn't matter if you think that. Well, I don't feel like I'm a part. It doesn't matter if the, but, because Christ is saying your identification is that you are a, an, a critical, unmovable, fixed part of a body of Christ, of the larger body and of whatever body you've chosen to say, I'm part of this deal. I'm an integral part of a body of Christ. Paul goes on to say in verse 21, the hand cannot, the eye cannot say to the hand, I am not reliant. I'm my own man. I am my own woman. I cannot say that. I don't have the right. And by the way, it would not even be a reality. The, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Well, this makes sense to us. We can't pluck out our eyeball and say, well, I think we'll just let that live by itself. That's obvious, right? But when it comes to our everyday actions and our life, somehow it becomes disconnected at that point. As if we could live as an eyeball out here outside the body of Christ that God has planted us in and immersed us in. Now, last week when we were talking about relay races, I I told you that I contacted a national record holder of a relay racer because I like to say, T tell me a little bit of something. Let me learn something about, you know, the, the, the whole thing about relay racing and what it was like, etc. So this week, as we're looking at the body, I contacted my neurologist friend this week and I said, man, can you can you tell me a little bit about the reliance in the in our physical body, how how things are connected, and then just wrote me a beautiful email, and and uh, a lot of it is like wow, just stunning and astounding and um, unpronounceable. Uh, a lot of the words, as you will see coming up here in just a second. And because he's a neurologist, he said, "Well, let's you know, probably a lot to say, but let's focus on on this one, and it's called the autonomic uh, nervous system." It's about as big as your thumb, and it's at the base of your, your, uh, your brain. The, the brain weighs about two to three pounds, and it has neurons that are message senders. And there's about 80 to 100 million neurons that are sending about 200 billion connected codes to one another. Now, now... I can see some of you are not impressed. So this afternoon, you go try to make one and then come back and, and see. <laughs> Yesterday, I was having boys day and on the way to playing some tennis with one of my sons, I said, think about the body and, and if you were God for a second. And that before Adam w was formed, you know that God thought about how he's going to operate and how God made this individual. And he's going to have to see where he's going 
He's going to have to hear things. He's going to have to be able to eat and then digest and eliminate so that he can keep eating. His skin is going to have to be waterproof, but he's still got to breathe. Just think. It's so hard to imagine that from scratch, God made the individual. God even said, when a person, when a human being is going to be in trouble and distress, I'm going to have to set up a mechanism to, to help him or her out. And that's what this autonomic nervous system does. And because there's, there's uh, what's being sent from this center right at the base of your brain are the following three things. You will recognize them. The first one is called noradrenaline, but we're, for our sake, we're going to call adrenaline, serotonin, and dopamine. So that, let's say you're walking across the street, everything's going good, but you look up and there's a car coming right at you. When God created man in all of his brilliance, he knew that we would find ourselves in those times where we would need to move quicker, to react, and to do something beyond our ability. So what happens in those moments is from the autonomic uh, nervous center, then adrenaline is pushes the blood out to our muscles so that instead of going, oh, there's a car coming, our muscles automatically... What's, the, the muscles don't phone up the nervous system. Hey, you better get here quick in about 1.8 seconds because I'm in trouble. You need to send something. Automatically, the adrenaline from the brain shoots to the shoots blood to the muscles so that we go, ah, and we can move a lot faster than we normally would. It, you've heard of people who have picked up cars because that adrenaline has kicked in and allowed them to do something past what they can normally do it affects the heart rate it affects the the lungs you don't say oh okay i gotta think about this the car is coming <laughs> start breathing faster <laughs> get the heart going faster it happens are you ready automatically the god who made us said i'm gonna put that in the body so that we are reliant on that system to kick in serotonin readies the emotions in other words it gets us like ah! that's that's serotonin when it kicks in automatically you don't have to do it manually and dopamine amongst many things makes us like instead of when the car's coming uh oh trip it, it motorizes our coordination to a height that's greater than we would normally have think about the care of a god who integrated all those things even before we were made. Now, if you're still not stunned, I brought pictures. Watch this. Here's a brain cell. Here is a brain cell. When I first looked at that, I'm like, wow, what is that? It's like a, a universe or something. I want you to see the beauty of it. The intricacy of it that when God made all these details. Want to see a picture of adrenaline? Here we go. Adrenaline. Ah! <laughs> it looks like it feels, right? <laughs> that is a picture of adrenaline kicked in and fire looks like, yeah, it looks like fireworks. Just like a brilliant. I'm looking at that and I look at, at the, the detail and the brilliance and the color and what it does and how it's designed. And I will say to you that evolution, I'm going to get worked up, cannot do that. 
Ah! I'll be fine. I think I had some dopamine kick in or something. <laughs> serotonin. Look at the web of serotonin. Look at the design. Look at the intricacies from the Creator's hand. All right. Since we are the body of Christ, this is how God has designed us to be reliant. Now, here's the mind change. Most people think, okay, I'm relying on you. Lean on me. When you're in trouble, I'll be there for you, right? All well and good. All true. But our reliance is not for me to call you and you'll be there. I'm going to trust that's going to be true. But I'm relying, are you ready? On you to come to me at times. I'm reliant on that nervous system to kick in before I have to call it. Because sometimes I don't even know what to call and how to call it. I'm relying on it to do its thing. And in our Christian experience, there are so many times where we leave it up to you that, hey, if you have any needs, give me a call. What God teaches us in the scripture here and the way he's designed our bodies is that there's sometimes before you call, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to affirm you, encourage you. I'm going to point some things out you can't see. I'm going to help you. I'm going to, I'm going to underline you at sometimes, undergird you. I'm going to be there and you will not have to call on me. I'm telling you, in my life, in the most difficult situations, it was either A or B. A, nobody called me and they just thought, hey, I'll be there for you. And I didn't because I'm a man. Or B, when I got to those stress situations or I needed affirmation, somebody came and said, hey, I noticed something happening. It just happened to me this past week. My closest friend called and said, I perceive, I perceive that you're walking on the edge of overload. And we've gone backwards a little bit here, Steve, from three years of where you used to be. I would not have picked up the phone and told him that because I'm a man. Now, I'm being super transparent with you. You need someone to come to you. And that's different than the way we think, is it not? So watch. I'm going to do a a fanfare here, an overture of David's life this morning. Very quickly. We're going to move very quickly. First Samuel 22, if you want to follow in your, in your Bible, I'm going to move pretty quick, but we'll be right in that, that region. 1 Samuel 22. Here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the key intersections of David's life, and I want you to notice what's not there. Phone a friend. He did not have to call anyone because God set up an unapologetic, autonomic network of people that cared enough and listen had the guts enough to come to him now you might remember let me give you a 60 second uh preview here david was anointed king but he didn't come become king right away it's not 
much different than our own system. The president-elect is elected in November, but he really doesn't become president. He or she doesn't become president and, and, um, until the, next, the following year, right? And so, uh, but David's was a lot longer. It, it, it was like a two or three-month period. And so when, when uh, David was anointed king, Saul, the first king of Israel, was made king. Uh, he blew it. Saul did. He, he, ego got to the best of him. He became proud. Evil kicked in. Things went south. Everybody knew that that Dave was up. David, King David, you know, David was going to be the king. And uh, but there was this time, this transition period that prom, I promise you was a lot rougher than November to January is. This transitionary period, Saul became jealous of David, and he wanted to take him out. There were several assassination attempts on his life. And because of that, David became a fugitive. On the very first leg of being a fugitive, he landed in a cave, a location that many men, if you were honest, are very familiar with. Men are quite familiar with a cave. In fact, the cave, we say man cave for a reason, because we're quite comfortable in the cave. In fact, we've mastered cave language. You might be as a man, no, women are probably uh, challenged with this too, but I'm just being around enough men for many years. You might be in the worst cave of your life and people say, hey, Steve, how's it going? Great, man. How you doing? That's cave language, by the way. Call me if you need it. You bet. Sure will. I'm not calling anybody. I'm in my cave because in my cave, you know what I am? I'm not reliant on anyone. We feel like we can work it out as men, can't we? We've got it all. we got this master plan going all through our head. And God's saying, you're stupid. That plan will never work. Remember that it's not good that man was created to be alone in a cave. David finds himself in a cave, a cave of, uh, of a, in a place called a julem in 1 Samuel uh, 22, verse 1. David left Gath, where he was Saul was trying to kill him, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, there it is. They became autonomic. They went to him. They didn't wait. They didn't send him a memo. Hey, heard it's kind of rough. Heard you're on the run. Heard somebody's trying to kill you. If you get into trouble, give me a call. That's what we do as a Christian culture, do we not? Here's another one. Have you ever heard of this? Ah, man. Heard you're going in the cave. You're on the run. I'm praying for you, bro. I am praying for you. And somehow bro always gets in there. Praying for you, bro. Now, we're, we mean well. And we probably do pray, maybe. <laughs> but we've left that person on their own. What happens? He found himself in a cave. And they went down there to him. All those in distress in debt and discontented gathered around him. Oh, thanks a lot, God. You sent the brightest and the best. Those who were in debt, those who were distressed, and those discontented. This is where the story of Robin Hood begins, right here. <laughs> Let me tell you why I think God sent those people. You see, David was distressed. David was discontent, and the last thing he needed to do is be sent people that had their life all together to make him feel like a loser. So God, as intimate and intricate 
as he has put the, the system and said, man, dopamine right now, so intricate. He said, oh, I know exactly who to send to a distressed man. Someone who understands distress. That's who I'm going to send. Brilliant. And he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. The next chapter in, in chapter 23 of 1 Samuel, David finds himself in a desert, as many of us have. Dry, barren, lonely. He's moved from a cave to a desert. You might remember that his best friend, who they, he and Jonathan was his name, were knit in spirit. So who's God going to send in a desert when it comes to spirit? He sends Jonathan. Watch this. He didn't, David didn't have to call him. I'm going to repeat myself over and over. 1 Samuel 23, 15. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life again. Verse 16, and Saul's son, Jonathan, David's best friend. There it is again. Autonomic. He immediately went to David. David didn't have to call him. David wasn't alone saying, man, I wish Jonathan would call me. I'm not going to pick up the phone. No, Jonathan went to him, watch, at Horesh, and helped him find strength in God. Of course, it was the right person because they were knit in spirit. And at that moment, God said, hmm, I got to send in immediately someone who David will trust from his heart. Does anyone other than myself find that brilliant? He didn't have to call him, yet God sent the right person. Now, Two chapters later, First Samuel 25, David was asking a favor from a guy. His name was Nabal. Now, Nabal was a jerk. The Bible says just about like that. He was not well-liked. He was not a friendly person. He had done, David had done some favors in, in warfare. He didn't, uh, he left them alone, etc. So they were hungry. We've moved from cave to desert to hungry. Now, David was starving. He wasn't having his best day. I don't know about you, but when I'm hungry, get out. That's not, that's not going to go well. David sent messengers to Nabal and said, hey, you remember the favors we done? I'm, gonna, I'm calling one in. We're hungry, man. Can you send us some, send us some grub? And uh, Nabal said, I'm not sending you anything. Because David was having a bad day, he became wired. He said, ah, fine. Saddle up, boys. Break out the weapons. We're going to go in and we're going to wipe out every male in their community. Not a real good day. Not something that God would have been pleased with. It would have been on his record the rest of his life that he basically was a mass murderer because these guys did nothing wrong. He was just hungry, having a bad day. God's like, okay, who am I going to call? Because listen. When I'm, when I'm raged, when I'm wired, that is the last place I'm ever going to pick up the phone. How about you? I'm embarrassed. If I, when I'm angry or something, I'm like, hey, Bob, I'm angry. Help me out. It's, not, it's probably not going to happen. God said, I need someone to go to him. He's not going to call anybody. I need someone that can soften him. I'm going to send Nabal's wife. She's got a soft heart. She went to him. She brought him a feast. I mean, it was the to-go sack from Steak and Shake, man. It had everything in it. 
including raisin cakes, which they don't have, by the way. For Samuel 25, as Abigail was riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met him. She went to him. He didn't call anybody. She went to him. How many times do we see it in David's life? David, so she gave him the, um, David saw her. David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord of the God of Israel who has sent you today to meet me. I'm telling you, when I look back at the intersections of my life, for those men, very few, by the way, and very rare, that in those moments had the guts and the humility and the courage and the transparency to pick up the phone and call me. This is the prayer. Praise be to God that you came out and met with me today. Thank you that you were friend enough to come. I'm reliant on that. I'm reliant on you to come. He gave her all this food. It calmed him down. Chill out, Dave. Chill out. 33, after he chilled out in verse 33, Abigail, may you be blessed for your good judgment because I was missing mine and keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. You saved me. You saved me. Because some, because you came to me. Who right now is saving you from yourself? Are you waiting? Are they waiting for you to call them? This is where we have to change our paradigm of saying, don't wait. Someone is reliant on you to be autonomic, to go to them. It's a different way of thinking, is it not? And if you embrace that identity of like, wow, they're reliant on me. Your actions will be different. How many times have we said to ourselves, and Bob looks a little edgy. That's his business, I guess. I don't know that I should call him. I think I smelled alcohol on, on Bill's breath early in the morning. Maybe I, should, maybe I should say, do you need a friend right now to walk through with you? I've seen how, I've seen how uh, Robert treats his wife in public. I, maybe I'm the one because I'm a trusted friend to say, hey, dude, let's talk, shall we? You see, we're so fearful of those things. But we've left people to be independent on their own inadvertently. Because it's tough for us. There are so many other stories. Just for time, I, I'm going to skip them. And we're going to go to the moment when it happened. We all know what it is in David's life, right? That it has been recorded in scriptures. It has been engraved in David's history. A man after God's own heart the greatest king of the nation of Israel, one who taught us about Christ, and yet that it is part of his life. I'm speaking about the evening 
where David said, you know what? I think I'm going to go solo commando here. I think I'm going to go without any help. I think I'm going to step out. You remember the scene? It's told to us in 2 Samuel in chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring at the time when kings should go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. He was left by himself. They destroyed the Ammonites, their enemies, and besieged Rabbah. But David remained alone in Jerusalem. He said, you guys go. I'm going to kind of hang out by myself. It was the worst mistake he ever made. He walked alone that day on the, that evening in the palace roof. He saw Bathsheba. She was attractive. See, had his best friend been there and been a true friend, as we're talking about today, that friend would say, hey, what are you looking at? What are you looking at, dude? Come on, man. You know better than that. You're a man after God's own heart. Stop. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Let's go watch, uh, let's go watch some sports or something, right? Let me get your mind off that. That's what a true friend does. A true friend is proactive. A true friend is observant. A true friend gives a flip enough to say something. That's where in our culture, our church culture, as much as I love, I'm like, ah, we need more of that. We need more friends. I'm reliant on someone to come to me, not me go to them all the time. But no one was there because David sequestered himself. He said to one of his, there was a servant still left in the palace. He said, hey, go get her, bring her up. The servant knew what that meant. The response is stunning. David separated his identity at that moment and just, just severed himself from everything he knew. How do you know that? Watch this. The man that he said, hey, go get Bathsheba and bring her up. He says, the man said, well, isn't that Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, this person didn't have the, the right to say anything like that. He was a servant, but he did anyway. Now, here's what he was saying. When you trace out these these guys, they weren't just, it wasn't like he just saw some gal on the beach that didn't have any connection to him. He was deeply connected to Bathsheba's family. You see, Uriah, if we look at the, the list of these guys, Uriah, the Hittite, if we can go to the next screen, he was the husband of Bathsheba, but of all the thousands of soldiers, he was part of the Navy SEALs for David. In fact, he was probably out near the front line. He was one of what it was called the 30. Uriah was there. And, and Eliam, the father of Bathsheba, same. If you read Second Samuel chapter 23, he was in the, the core of David. He was out there fighting for David. And not only if that, if you go to another scripture verse and you look at Eliam's father, which would have been Bathsheba's grandfather, Ahithophel, he was the top advisor to David in Second Samuel 16. Now in those days, the advice of Ahithophel, Bathsheba's granddad gave the, the advice that he gave was like that one of one who inquires of God. That's how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. He was the voice of God to David and he was about to wreck Ahithophel and Eliam and Uriah's life by stepping past the identity of who he was and wrecking their life and their family. When leaders, 
When pastors step off the line, it is the most selfish moment of our lives because we cut off the family that God has created, has put us in to see the flock. It's not just about a private moment of sensuality. It's so deeper than that. The call that we have as Christians goes and runs deep because why? We are reliant on one another. It's a serious, serious intersection for David. And of course, we know the story that he puts you, David puts Uriah on the front line so that he's killed. First degree murder in this country. He then calls Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant. Now watch this. Who in the world is David going to call in that moment? Nobody. The loneliness in the cave. The loneliness in the desert. The agony of hunger compared. It was pale in comparison to the loneliness that he had in that moment. This is the big one. And I'm not going to call anybody. God sent someone. Big surprise. His name was Nathan. Second Samuel 12 verse 1. Second Samuel 12 verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And the reason he did. One of the counselors that we use here in Sarasota. Just an incredible counselor. I saw this on his Facebook this week. He said quote of the day. The worse I feel about something. The less I'm able to admit it. And he said by the way. I hear this at least once a week. David wasn't about, he felt as low as low can be. And it's in those moments that deep in the, the valleys of our inner self, we wish, man, if somebody would just call me. But not anybody. This is not a license to say, hey, we don't know each other very well, but hey, I saw this in... Mm-mm. Nathan was a trusted friend, one who had blessed David, one who had been in his life, one that he trusted his word. And so God sent Nathan and Nathan said, I know what's going on, but he told a story. And sometimes when we read the story of Nathan and David, you know, we get up, we get all up about him like, oh, yeah, he really let David have it. He didn't. You see, he went to David. Think about now we're talking about the intricacy of the body and who God would send. And so he sent Nathan and and Nathan knew David so well. He knew that he was a fair man, that he had principles. He said, let me tell you a story. There was a rich man and a poor man. And the the poor man just had this little sheep. And the rich man who had a lot of sheep came and took it away. And David said, that's not right. You see, Nathan knew what to say because he knew David was a principled man, except for this instance. He knew that he would get riled about it. And it just so happens that the star of the story is a little sheep. Huh. David was, oh, that's right, a shepherd boy. 
how intricate God has designed us to be, that he would send a trusted friend who knew David's principles and knew all of his history. And he said, David, David got all enraged about the story and how this this guy that had everything took something from a guy that only had one. He said, you're the guy. And we always like to say, yeah, that's our favorite line in the story. Like, you know, when, when uh, Nathan says, you're the man. And we say it with kind of this gritty gusto. Like, ha, ha, ha. It wasn't that way at all. Listen, Nathan cared enough to not let David live the rest of his life in this private agony and loneliness. By the time Nathan showed up, he showed up after the child was born. And so for nine months or more, for nine months, David was all about what I call group talk. I love groups, by the way, but group talk. You know how it goes. Group talk is like, hey, Dave, how's it going? You look a little ragged today, like you're carrying something heavy. No, it's all good. It's all good. You know, it's group talk. And then if we get to the next level of transparency in a group, you know how it goes. Dave, David might have said, you know, my eyes rove once in a while, but yeah, you know, we all do. You know what I'm saying? That's group talk. Have you ever heard it? Because rarely in a group does someone say, hey, man, I got to tell you, I just committed adultery and I've got a pregnant, uh, I've got a woman pregnant. Man, any rate, is it snack time for group? (laughs) That's usually not going down in a group, and I'm not sure that it should. I'm not sure that it should. There's only such much, so much transparency that we can get in a group. And we can't expect in a group that that happens. That's why God has said it's got to be more intimate than that one-to-one. You know this, the, these circles. It's part of our logo, the big circles, what we're doing now. Now, who in the world is ever going to say, hey, I've never met you, Jim, but hey, good to meet you. Now, here's some really dark secrets about, you know, of course not, right? So therefore, what we do in the church culture, we say, okay, then we're going to break out and we're going to be a group. And so we become a group and we, those white dots are us sitting in that group. And normally what we do, a person in the group says, hey, I'm going to share a little bit about something in my life. And so I begin to share to the group. And I might say, and this is where group talk comes in. This, I may say, hey, yeah, I, I am going through a rough time. I'm, I'm overworking a little bit. And if it's really like, you know, a flaming jack of clubs, I'm probably going to play like a four of clubs. I'm going to play a little, I'm going to play less than the real deal. You know what I'm saying? Anybody? Huh? 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 Please help me out. And it's appropriate. It's nothing wrong with that. But that's what a group does. And in the church culture, we've stopped at group. We've stopped at group. And we thought that group was the end. It's not. It can't be. It's not designed to be that. We need more which is the next circle. We need that Nathan to come in and not expect me to say it. I'm expecting, I am reliant on the Nathans to come and say, man, Steve, you played a four of clubs. I know you didn't play the whole eight, but you didn't even see the four of diamonds. The men in my life who said, oh, I got to talk to you about a blind spot because I can't see a blind spot. That's an oxymoron, right? You can't see the blind spot. So someone else has to see them for you. That's the beauty of getting down one to one. And it's not only about, hey, Steve, you're wrong about this. You're wrong about this. Sometimes we need a Jonathan one to one to say, man, you seem, let me get on my knees with you right now. 
Let me encourage you. Let me strengthen you. Let me affirm you. Let me be there for you. And I'm not just going to tell you. I'm going to pray for you, bro. Let's pray right here and right now. I'm going to call you tomorrow morning and see how you're doing. That, my friend, I am reliant on. I'm reliant on it. And we must become that in the Christian culture. We cannot wait for them to call us from a cave or from the desert or when they're hungry. We must, in a word, be autonomic. Does that make sense? That's how God has designed our body. And that's how God has designed our body. Today we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now we celebrate the Lord's Supper very intentionally. We, we do so instead of saying, hey, let's do it on the first Sunday of every month or something like that. We say, where is it accentuated, the depth of what Christ was teaching us? So why would we do it today? I'll tell you why. If you are a Christian and you're sitting here today... You are the recipient of someone who was sent to you. His name, Jesus Christ. Religion is phone a friend. Religion is, I got to get to heaven. I got to call heaven. I got to do the first thing. I have to do the first thing. Christianity, Christ is, no, you can't. I'm coming to you. We close with this verse today in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. This is love. Not that we called God. Not that we loved God. Oh, my goodness. But that he loved us enough not to leave us in a cave or a desert or in hunger. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I guess you could say God is autonomic. And he expects you to be as well. Father, we're absolutely without words to say thank you enough for not expecting us to call heaven for expecting us God to figure it out but you came to us you sent your son to us God you sent a rally of distressed people to David you sent Jonathan to David you sent Abigail to David you sent Nathan to to David. God, teach us that we are so reliant on this, that reliant for you, for those in our life, God, to be sent to us. So many of us are so reticent to pick up the phone, God. So we need those friends, true friends in our life that will automatically come to us. Now, God, it's our turn. Are we that to others? Are we too afraid to ask, to say something? 
Are we so busy with our own schedules that we can't even observe distress, our debt, our discontent? That we can't see, God, where someone is calling from a cave or living in a cave or a desert in the privacy of of loneliness. So God, I pray that you'll heighten us as recipients of one who has been sent to us that we'll also identify ourselves as necessary parts of the body. Almost like human serotonin or dopamine or adrenaline, God, that we should act and sometimes ask and affirm, challenge those who are closer, that, that we've spent enough and invested enough in the relationship where it's trusted and it's right and it's earned, that we have earned the right to, say, to ask God help us not to drop that identity because someone is relying on us. We enter in, God, to this time of remembering what Christ did intentionally today. We come thankful, God, of your faithfulness. We come thankful, God, that you have been sent to us. So, God, we come today very thankful. And we ask, God, that you bless this time, that you bless the bread and the juice. and But more than that, God, that you would bless our time of, of remembering the greatness of a God who intricately designed us to be sent, to be aware. So with that in mind, we pray, God, in the name of our Savior who was sent to us, Jesus. Amen.